This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. And I'm producer Faye Adavita. Coming up on the podcast, Taylor Lorenz. The writer, tech journalist and columnist for The Washington Post discusses her new book, Extremely Online, the untold story of fame, influence and power on the internet. The book tells the often messy and constantly evolving story of social media since the early 2000s to the present day. So you actually interviewed Taylor for this episode, Connor. And I have to say one question that you asked that I found particularly interesting and thought-provoking was what her first memory of the internet was. What would you say your first memory was? I think my earliest memories are MSN Messenger coming home from school and nudging and sending weird early versions of emojis and GIFs. But they're quite cringe, to be honest. Don't make me relive my MSN (laughs) memories anymore. But Faye, what was your first memory of the internet? I love that. And I was definitely going to say MSN as well. I'm looking forward to hearing more from Taylor on that subject. This is Connor Boyle speaking with Taylor Lorenz about her book, Extremely Online. Now, Taylor, you speak about how social media often can be dismissed as a fad, but it's actually one of the greatest revolutions in modern capitalism. I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit for us. Yeah, definitely. I mean, my book talks a lot about the good and the bad um, of the rise of this new kind of media landscape, I guess you could say. What social media has done, and that means blogs, everything from blogs to YouTube to TikTok to newsletters, like basically any kind of way that the internet is facilitating mass communication and connection has really transformed the sort of media landscape. And it's uh, transformed our political system. It's transformed our economy. Um, This interconnectedness, um, we've never had this level of interconnectedness in the world before. And it's, you know, it's having a lot of crazy effects, I guess. And so um, I think it's worth taking seriously. I think a lot of people think that the concept of online influence is just a fad when online influence is this really powerful sort of form of currency that's emerged that's you can use to kind of do anything you want, basically. And just to take a really recent example of that, I mean, we've seen as events have unfolded in Israel and Gaza, the way in which social media has really shaped people's responses to that. I wonder, I know through your reporting, do you have any perspective on how social media has really shaped people's um, response to the Israel-Palestine crisis. Yeah, I wrote a story a couple like God look a month ago now whenever right after the war broke out about um you know how people are getting their information increasingly from TikTok, increasingly from on the ground sources um and influencers. Um these are big content creators that are shaping these narratives. So you have a huge amount of Israeli influencers with an enormous amount of power online, you know, pushing their narrative and then you have a lot of Palestinians also trying to kind of get the word out. Um I think what we've seen 
With this war specifically, however, is an enormous amount of censorship um, of specific voices. And I think we see the problem with overreaching content moderation. Um, journalists such as um, Amir, the young journalist, he's Palestinian, he runs at Muslim. It's a huge Instagram news page and he's a content creator himself. Um, you know, has had, had his reach destroyed. And um, so I think it's you're seeing kind of the troubles with having most of these social media platforms owned by Western countries that have very specific political interests and they can push those kind of political interests through the platforms. But yeah, it's definitely a lot more people are getting direct information from the ground. And it's important to understand how this whole medium came about. I wonder if you could tell us, when was the first time do you remember using the internet? My first time using the internet was probably sometime in the late 90s when I was a kid using AOL Instant Messenger. Um, my book kind of starts around that turn of the millennium um, with the rise of blogs. I started as a blogger as well. That's how I got into journalism. Um, and blogs were kind of the earliest forms of social media. This was like pre-Facebook, pre-Friendster, pre-MySpace. Um, you know, people were basically cultivating these personalities online. I talk about mommy bloggers specifically, which were the mothers who are in large part shut out of the labor market and kind of turned to the internet for community and ended up developing these really big audiences um, and monetizing their personal brands and building media companies essentially that really ended up transforming the women's media landscape. So that's kind of, I would say, the earliest. Obviously, the internet existed before that. I think the internet is, I don't know when it even started, but I would say the real true consumer internet began at the turn of the millennium. One thing we you talk about in the book is there was this new phase of people not just having sort of friends but also having an audience and an audience being something different to your sort of friends group do you want to talk was that what the appeal of blogging was to to bloggers yeah um so there were all different types of bloggers that there were a lot of early tech and political bloggers for them they were really just trying to like get information out and it was like setting up like they were very intentional they were usually promoting news um, but then you had the personal bloggers, the lifestyle bloggers, the mommy bloggers, the fashion bloggers that had more interest-based content or personality-driven content. And for them, blogging was an outlet and it was a form of communication, of course. Like they developed these audiences that were very powerful and those audiences developed deep parasocial bonds with the content creators, the bloggers that they followed. Um, and so you started to see brands and this sort of like new business model emerge for media where these individual voices were cultivating these cults of personality and then monetizing and brands sort of moving towards that and increasingly doing deals with those people. That feeling of having an audience beyond the beyond your immediate social group in your real life, was was there an appeal? Was that a big appeal to why people were actually becoming bloggers? No. I mean, at the time, you couldn't do anything with it very much. You could Maybe you could earn a little bit of money, but even then, you mostly got backlash for putting ads on your page if you were a mom. So it was there was the real reason those early bloggers were blogging was truly just because they wanted an outlet and they wanted connection and they wanted to kind of meet other people like them and have this creative outlet. They weren't really in it for the money because the money wasn't there yet. They didn't really understand how to leverage an audience. Like nowadays, it's all of these things seem so second nature. And if you have an audience, oh, I can, you know, you can immediately think of many things you can do with that audience. Back then, it was so much more limited because even if you had that audience, you, 
those revenue pathways and those opportunities weren't built yet. So you wouldn't think like, let me launch my own clothing brand. Like that was still really far off because you hadn't had this whole e-commerce revolution. So it was, they were really just doing it for the love of the game, honestly, and to meet people early on. Yeah. And one of the people you, you talk about early in the book, and it's a real blast from the past, from the kind of MTV era for me, is Prez Hilton. Um, yeah. And the way in which sort of the breakdown of mainstream publications or, you know, the way in which these bloggers began to sort of puncture mainstream. Can you tell us a little bit about those early influencers and what impact they had? Yeah. Um, I mean, people like Perez Hilton at the time, he ran page 666, which was an early tabloid blog. Um, it was sort of disrupting the Us Weeklies of the world. Um, and eventually became PerezHilton.com, was hugely popular. He was a big popular blogger in the celebrity space. You had the mommy bloggers. You had a lot of food bloggers, lifestyle bloggers, people like Pioneer Woman, um, who's you know hugely successful now, um, fashion bloggers as well, Brian Boy. Um, you had people basically in all these different niches kind of disrupting the different media in those niches. So the mommy bloggers were kind of upending traditional women's magazines. Um, the fashion bloggers were upending things like Vogue and Harper's Bazaar. And suddenly the bloggers were sitting front row at the Dolce & Gabbana show in 2009 and things like that. You had Perez Hilton obviously taking on tabloid media. And then you had people like Josh Marshall, who I talk about in the book, and other sort of political bloggers upending like the news media, Ezra Klein. A lot of them ended up actually being absorbed into mainstream media. But um, in every sector, you sort of just had this new media landscape that was dominated by internet-driven content and voices. And this was also a time when reality TV was really <laughs> dominant in terms of people's interests. I mean, it still is to a certain extent, but do you think the the combination of reality TV and this new medium of the internet celebrity kind of combined and have already launched this you know, you don't have to become a celebrity through traditional means anymore. There's other ways to becoming an influencer or famous. Yeah, exactly. So in the 2000s, especially with the writer's strike in, I think it was 2007, um, you just saw this democratization of, of what fame meant. So you had people growing audiences on the internet and becoming this sort of new type of, getting this new type of internet fame. And then from sort of the top down, you had the changing notion of what it meant to be a TV star because you had a huge boom. I mean, there was thousands and thousands of reality shows suddenly made in the aughts. This was this reality TV boom, especially in the late aughts. And so the people on those shows, for instance, like The Bachelor or The Bachelorette, you know, like they became these household names. And that really changed people's perception of what it meant to be a TV star because previously you would have to audition and it would be a scripted show and you know maybe there was the real world i talk about eric niece one of the first kind of real world reality stars in in the 90s but even so he could barely do anything with that because there wasn't this online infrastructure to support that type that new type of fame so yeah you had this kind of like sandwich happening in the aughts where it was like the internet was bubbling up and you had famous people coming from the internet and then you had the bar for fame and traditional entertainment kind of lowering with reality tv just more average people blowing up. Um, and then you saw a lot of crossover between those two, too. Like a lot of early MySpace stars, for instance, Tila Tequila and others um, went into reality television, actually, because they didn't th there wasn't really space for them in traditional entertainment. So they were like, OK, they could make a name for themselves with reality TV. Same with thing with like people like Paris Hilton. 
She likes to call herself the first influencer, Kim Kardashian, also an early influencer. Both of them, I mean, Paris especially was like a socialite as well. And I talk about this in the book too, how like socialites were playing this interesting role. And socialites have always had a weird kind of fame as well, like a micro fame, I guess you could say. And so, yeah, you had all of these things happening in the aughts that kind of gave birth to this influencer economy, which really then exploded in the 2010s. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code SQUARED, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before bring the arts home with marquee tv the events calendar is filling up here at intelligence squared and to create each one we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and on-stage talent but behind the scenes there's also a producer a production team and the budget in the mix too you've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place netsuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. When did this start becoming seen as an industry in and of itself? Was it the 2010s? I remember YouTube seemed to become more, people were YouTubers, not as a hobby, but as a full-time job. When was that kind of shift? Really in the 2010s. um, I mean, YouTube, of course, launched its partner program, which was its monetization program in 2007. And the first content house was in 2009 called The Station. But it wasn't until YouTube bought Next New Networks, the original multi-channel network that actually coined the term creator in its modern usage. Um, That was in 2011. Um, And so... Yeah, I think it was like the the it took time. You had the inklings of it in the late aughts, but there the money wasn't there yet, and the social media ecosystem wasn't there yet. Instagram didn't even launch until t- twenty ten, right? So it just things really had to kind of progress and emerge. And of course, things like TikTok, of course, didn't even launch until much later. Vine launched in the twenty tens. All of these like big time social media apps. I would say the twenty tens were really dominated by this broadcast model of social media where. It was like one to many. It was all about getting followers. It was all about getting attention. And, you know, the word influencer emerged as well in that era, in that era, because in the mid 2010s, you had all of these um, brands pouring millions of dollars suddenly into the creator ecosystem. 
And I suppose the question is, one of the big themes through your book is this new creator economy created a lot of good and then, you know, obviously a lot of bad. I wonder if we could focus on the good first. What do you think were some of the benefits to this new development of no mainstream brands or companies, but actual just individuals being able to have these audiences and connect with people? Like, What are some of the benefits that has, that, that has had? Well, a lot of marginalized people were able to get a voice early on, and this has become less and less true as these algorithms have started to shape content distribution. But blogging was a lot about sort of circumventing the mainstream system. That's why you saw this entire industry founded by women and LGBTQ people and people of color. These were people that were shut out of traditional systems. So they were able to kind of get a voice, despite the fact that the, gate, they, the gatekeepers would have never given them a voice. So that was really empowering, especially early on. Um, you know, other upsides were just independence, more entrepreneurship, more people. There's more media to go around. So people are inherently more informed, generally, um, about world events and news. Um, and it provided a lot of, you know, creative fun. Like a lot of people just had fun making content. I definitely had fun making vines, you know, like these were like entertaining platforms for a lot of people as well. So that was the good. Yeah. Well, Vine is an interesting case and obviously it it, it, it didn't um, continue. It, it petered out. But do you think these companies had to, you know, if they wanted to be purely good, it was difficult to stay profitable. I mean, I'm just trying to think of, do you think the bad None is... Sorry, let me Well, just... the bad, there's so much bad. There's so much bad. The bad is misinformation, disinformation, harassment and abuse, the weaponization of the internet and the weaponization of audiences on the internet to kind of drive, you know, drive out um, people of color and women's voices from the mainstream. You have people that were previously shut out, like people like Alex Jones. Like there's a reason that he's not on, you know, mainstream media because he promotes really dangerous hateful conspiracies, right? Suddenly with the internet and the rise of YouTube and influencer culture, people like that suddenly have a voice and they have a vast ability to monetize. So all of that is the is downsides. Another huge downside is the mental health aspect, right? Like the psychologically damaging shit that you have to go through if you are a content creator or just a user a lot of, of these social platforms. They're draining, they're exhausting, they they sow a lot of divisiveness and depression. So there's, you know, a huge downside to it as well. And of course, I think as a journalist, I think, you know, it's the death of a, a certain type of journalism and resources towards journalism. Traditional media for all its flaws has an enormous amount of resources to do a level of journalism that no, almost no content creator is able to kind of replicate. Yeah. And for, for a while, at least it seemed like for a while that the platforms were able to kind of maintain this, that there's just this neutral they're just this neutral site where people upload stuff and they're not really yes. in the game. And do you think, was it the adpocalypse? I wonder if you could tell us what was adpocalypse and was was there a shift when that happened? So throughout the early 2010s, there was a lot of tech boosterism. A lot of it was driven by the Obama administration, who was very pro-tech, very close with the tech companies. He famously had this event called South by South Lawn, where he invited kind of representatives from Uber and all the major social networks, you know, to come network with White House people and um, so there was this techno optimism around big tech. Um, once Trump was elected and his sort of rise was very enabled by social media, you saw the mainstream media suddenly turn on big tech and be like, wait a minute, these platforms are not all good. It's not all like liberation. It's actually, you know, giving rise to a certain level of far right 
extremism that's actually become very pervasive online. And specifically, like far right content creators had had been gone to garner massive audiences on YouTube, people like Alex Jones, um, Stephen Crowder, all of these people. And so YouTube suddenly had this problem. And um, so people like The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Washington Post started to look at be like, okay, what what is going on on these platforms? Let's take a more critical look. And what they saw was a lot of really inappropriate videos, because of course, this was also sort of coincided with the the worst of like YouTube culture, when it was the it was the daily vlog culture where um, YouTube was rewarding frequency of posting. So you had people like David Dobrik, Casey Neistat, all these people like posting all, every single day. And so a lot of them to kind of keep up, a lot of YouTubers had to post more and more extreme content. And this was right when the media started to pay attention to the creator world. And so you saw a lot of stories about bad behavior of content creators. This freaked advertisers out so much. So suddenly they started pulling all their ads. They were like, wait a minute, what? My ads are running next to what? Hateful stuff. I'm pulling all my ads off YouTube. So um, they pulled an enormous amount of advertising. Content creators, many of them were completely devastated. They had their livelihoods completely wiped out. And a lot of them never recovered. And that was referred to as the ad, ad apocalypse because it was when all these advertisers pulled out in mass. And I wonder to what extent that changed the promise of social media. I mean, was the promise of social media that it was this unregulated space, that it, it allowed everybody? Was that a part of the, yeah. the promise of it? In was the, it this, yeah. Initially, sure, especially in the aughts, right? Like the internet was supposed to be this like, open space where anybody could get a voice. I think that all went away quite quickly in the 2010s because you started to see profit became the most important metric for these platforms. And so they will always prioritize their profit above everything else, especially the mental health of content creators or like the livelihoods of content creators themselves. Those people are very interchangeable. They didn't really like a lot of the content creators aside from YouTube. YouTube always had a good sort of pro content creator stance, but, um, you know, platforms like Instagram were like these considered these people like a plague. So, um, there was always these tensions. Um, but I think really with the rise of algorithmic feeds is when you started to see these like inequalities emerge because the algorithmic feeds are built to optimize or sort of reward certain types of content, usually the most extreme and divisive content. So, you know, that's been hard and, and also certain group people don't perform well in the algorithm. Like, you know, we know that these social platforms discriminate against women's voices and people of color's voices and stuff like that. So I think like the, the original promise of the internet has not been totally fulfilled because because of the the profit incentives that these tech companies have. Yeah, and I suppose since the pandemic, as we've all been to a large extent extremely online, these recommendation algorithms are shaping more and more of what we see. And I just wonder from your perspective, obviously what they incentivize and reward is, you know, attention. Um, how do you think people growing up, you know, teens and things, how do you think those recommendation algorithms are shaping how, how people think? Yeah, I mean, I think these algorithms are completely shaping our worldview. Um, I'm very concerned with censorship and kind of shadow banning and over heavy handed moderation as a journalist, because, you know, people like Elon Musk, for instance, like the level of just blatant censorship that's happening on Twitter now where like journalists are being banned en masse. 
progressive activists are just banned on site a lot of the times by, you know, on Musk's Twitter, like it's very concerning. It's very concerning because I think, again, we don't have that level of free expression online anymore, not just because of the algorithms, but because of the increased content moderation that has come with scrutiny. Because I think a lot of like bad stuff has happened on these platforms. And so you have Congress and people in power that don't know anything about the platforms just be like, crack down on speech, crack down on speech. And these platforms often crack down on speech from the most marginalized groups. That's who gets punished by these types of heavy-handed moderation campaigns. And so, um, you know, it's it's a shame. And it's very worrying as a journalist because we rely on these platforms to get the word out about really important stories. I think Threads, for instance, you know, Instagram's new Twitter competitor, wholesale blocking dozens of words that are quote-unquote newsworthy words is really scary. For instance, you can't even search for the word COVID on threads, period. You're blocked from that as if it doesn't exist. That's very worrying. And I think that we should think twice about the power that we're giving these tech companies to shape our information ecosystems. I always say you should you should not just get all your content from social media algorithms because you'll have a very limited worldview. Yeah, well, I think, is, is that the her- inherent cr- contradiction that the people who are controlling the space also have an, an an opinion or a worldview, and I think for a long time that was maybe under the radar. But with Musk has come sharper into focus. Um, you know, as we're heading towards the end, you know, people always ask for solutions or, you know, well, what can be done about the bad? Is it possible? Because we all love our favorite YouTubers, we love our favorite TikToks. Is it possible to have the good without the bad, or are these things so intertwined that social media will always have both? No, there's, it doesn't have to have both. I mean, you can have more positive social, like, you know, it really depends. And I think it's all about cultivating specific communities and making norms clear, you know, like, look at how quickly Musk has changed Twitter in really meaningful ways. That just shows how quickly you can incentivize really, really bad stuff if you want to. Um, I think it's really worrying to me, again, like that crackdown that Musk has been doing on free speech. But um, I think that I, I think that it's just about kind of the finding a better mix. I, I think that we need more free expression online. We also need more safety tools, right, to protect ourselves. Like users are not given many safety tools because we all, they want to spur engagement all the time. So it's like post more, post everything publicly. Everything is default public. Everything is default permanent. All of that's really unhealthy for us, I think, mentally and just for ourselves, you know, for like our information diets. So I think I think platforms that are less profit driven, platforms that don't just incentivize engagement above all else, more safety tools that allow each of us to kind of better curate our online experiences and how we want to engage with certain people on these platforms is better and more, you know, a, a freer and open and open, a more free and open um, a social media landscape where we can, you know, where we can speak more freely, I think is really also really important. Yeah. And I think that touches on a point of maybe us having a more of a say in what social media is. But I worry, and I wonder what your thoughts on this, I've seen things in China where they've got AI influencers, where they bypass people altogether. And you can have, you can have influencers, you can have social media. We have that already though. That's like a meme account. I mean, a meme account is not a technical person, right? It could yeah. even be run by groups of people, but it's like essentially a an online personality that lives online, only online, that people engage with online, often parasocially. So 
I'm not so worried about that stuff. I do think that the the concern about AI is the, I think a lot of the ways that it's being used to weaponize, uh, being weaponized against women and marginalized people. I mean, AI porn and AI deep fakes are a huge problem. Um, unconsensual like nudes being made of women on the internet. That's like a that's a huge thing that people are using AI for already and that these platforms are not policing. And so I'm much more worried about that than like, you know. Yeah. So the deep deep fakes in terms of as it being weaponized for harassment and 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 that beca- because we see pylon culture is already a thing and that can be made worse. I suppose yeah. towards the end of the book you say tech founders may control the source code, but users shape the product. <laughs> can you tell us what you mean by that? Yeah, well, social products are very unique. It's not like an iPhone. It's not like a physical product. The product is the user base. Like you are the product, right? So like the product on Twitter is not really like the actual, I mean, Twitter is a good example, right? Because so many people cloned it. Truth Social, for instance, is almost an exact clone of what Twitter looks like, but it has a completely different user base. And so that product is different. And so that's the unique sort of nature of social platforms is that these communities are the product that these people are selling the, the content that they generate the engagement that they generate like that is what um the social platforms are selling to advertisers so i think actually we have a kind of a lot of control if you use your collective power to exert influence on these products or push for changes and things like that so um yeah i guess that's just what i was talking about there perfect and final thing to just wrap up like what what gives you hope for future of the online space oh my gosh um let's see what gives you hope it's so bad right now um i don't know i i think that young people i i'm really i really support young people using their voices i'm a really big supporter of independent journalism and i think the like people like who run at muslim like amir who i was talking about um other content creators aiden cone murphy from gen z for change like there's all these young people that are using these platforms to educate others about the world, do new forms of journalism, do new forms of activism. And that that gives me hope. I hope, I just, I hope they have power in this next tech sort of ecosystem that we're entering into. Well, on that hopeful note, I'd like to thank Taylor Lorenz for a fascinating conversation. The book again is extremely online, the untold story of fame, influence, and power on the internet. Do pick up a copy. Thanks again to Taylor. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Connor Boyle and edited by Tom Hall. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.